Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. Today on the show, we're talking about environmental factors in reproductive medicine. To guide us in this conversation is Dr. Carmen Masurlian. Dr. Masurlian is Assistant Professor of Environmental Reproductive, Perinatal, and Pediatric Epidemiology, Departments of Epidemiology and Environmental Health, Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and is also chair of the ASRM Environment and Reproduction Special Interest Group. Dr. Masurlian, welcome to ASRM today. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. So this is your first time on the show, so I, I always put my first time guests kind of through this question. If you would, tell our audience a little bit about yourself, how you got interested in this particular space in reproductive medicine. Sure. So I started out my career as a nurse at the Montreal Children's Hospital, where I was in McGill in Montreal, where I was exposed to a host of children who had various diseases um, from cancer to psychiatric diseases to lifelong disabilities that they were born with. And those opportunities, those experiences really shaped my knowledge and experience of when in time do diseases happen and how can we intervene to prevent childhood diseases? And so when I started to examine sort of etiology of childhood diseases, I realized that the pregnancy period is a really important part of the development of children and how they form and how they become healthier, um, unhealthy adults. So I started to examine in my PhD work at McGill University, infertility and adverse causes of infertility, the causes of infertility and the adverse outcomes associated with being infertile. So I studied um, couples that were infertile and looked at the causes of infertility and tried to examine whether or not the treatment, ART, medically assisted reproduction, or the actual underlying disease pathways were the, the cause of adverse outcomes that we see in children born through treatment. That took me down through a path of trying to understand where in the place of reproduction can we have the greatest impact. And we know that we're born with certain genes, but we also have an influence on our environment. So I wanted to have a space where I can empower people, understand the causes and look at interventions that could prevent harmful outcomes in children. And that really starts in the preconception prenatal period. And so my studies and my work at Harvard University um, really focus on modifiable risk factors in the environment and how we can intervene on those to try to improve outcomes in children and passionate about reproductive medicine. And to me, reproduction is something that happens from birth till death and uh, it impacts our entire life trajectory. And so um, this is where my space is on looking at couples and infertile couples and understanding how we can improve outcomes in those couples. Now I'm sure most of most of our uh, uh, membership base and our providers, when you when you say something like environmental factors, like this is this is very large, you know, yep. area. Could you could you give them an example of of what you're talking about? Yeah, so for me, the environment's really defined pretty broadly to include the social environment, which is sort of our relationships and the people that we're exposed to, the culture. If you think of an onion, so we have our, you know, our small nucleus, our family, the people in our relationships, then we have our workplace, our community, our culture, our country. That's a social environment. So that's considered an exposure to me, an environmental exposure. We also have what we call the built environment, things that are expo- that we're exposed to in our day-to-day lives that are part of the built environment, the furniture that I'm sitting on the desk that I'm touching, the book that I have in my hand, the cup that I'm drinking my coffee out of, anything that's in the built environment. So your structure of your house, um, what it's built out of, that's also considered an important environmental exposure. 
Lastly is the natural environment. So three parts, social, built, and natural environment. The natural environment is the food we eat, the water we drink, the air we breathe, the soil that grows our food, the, 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 the oceans that we're exposed to from the fish that we consume. That's considered the natural environment. And those three together form the total environment for me. And that's what I study, study the total environment. And there's opportunities in the environment to intervene. So we make choices in our day-to-day lives that allow us to have some Um, opportunity to improve our health. Now, when I say choices, I want to caution that because not everybody has the same opportunity to make a choice as others. And so I live in one neighborhood and someone of my age group could be living in a totally different neighborhood and have complete different access to clean air, clean water, clean environment, foods in their neighborhood, grocery store, social environment, crime, discrimination, other things that can impact our, our health. And we know that these things, the environment impacts impacts our reproductive health from the time that our eggs and sperm get formed in our bodies to the embryos being formed and then implanting into the uterus and then during the course of reproduction. And so there's many opportunities, many windows of vulnerability, but also windows of opportunity to improve our health and our exposures to the environment. Uh, one word that that we were discussing right before we went to the recording of this of this session was the word holistic, and you are very uh, this as you told me it's sort of your uh, your ballywick right like is this this is something you're very passionate about and and for our listeners again the 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 actual definition of holistic as it relates to medicine is characterized by the treatment of the whole person, taking into account mental and social factors rather than just the symptoms of an illness. So can you can you tell us a little bit more about how you're thinking about holistic approaches or in general? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I've noted in my time about 15 years now working in the fate in the space of reproductive medicine is Infertility clinics and medical professionals in the infertility space um, really, unfortunately, in some ways, but fortunately, they've really been focused on the eggs and the sperm, getting them together, putting them in a Petri dish, implanting the embryo, transferring the embryo back into the woman. And what I've noted is really this lack of real holistic care that we're really treating the eggs and the sperm. We don't really look at the person, the couple, the relationship, the whole mind-body connection that actually impacts our reproduction. So we know that the mental health of an individual can impact their reproductive system for both men and for women. There's tons of studies that show this. Um, So my approach and my wish is for doctors in the clinical space and the IVF space is to really tackle this entire um, problem from a a couple-based perspective, looking at the couple as a whole, trying to treat the couple, not just the eggs and the sperm, but really look at the individual and look at the stressors that they're faced. We know that one of the most important determinants of, um, of retention in a treatment setting is really the stress and anxiety that a couple faces in the clinic. And so the number one reason couples report for discontinuation of treatment is not because of failure of the, of the, of the, of the treatment, but really because of the stress and the strain of the emotional strain that comes with it. So one of the biggest gaps that we see is really the lack of attention to mental health, the lack of attention to holistic health for the couple and to support the couple through their fertility journey, looking at them as a unit, as an entity, supporting the relationship, supporting intimacy, supporting communication between the couple, all these things that seem um, sort of subjective, but very, very important for, um, for couples' health and for couples' reproductive success. Do you find then that in in these studies and also just in your own personal uh, practice 
over the years. Uh, uh, is there is there a gap between male and female as as far as as treatment is concerned, like or or, or looking at issues that might exist? So that's a great point. And one of the biggest unfortunate outcomes that has occurred in the course of reproductive medicine is really the focus on the female. We've, we've diagnosed male fertility. We say that 50% of couples, you know, it's a male factor cause, but we leave men out of the conversation completely. We don't focus on men's health, on men's well-being, on men's reproductive health. There's a little bit of a push now towards, um, you know, new market for men's fertility, for men's, you know, um, testosterone injections and trying to make men more virile, more sexual, more masculine. But really the idea is that we've really not included men in the conversation. Men desire care, men desire information, men want to be engaged in the process of fertility. And there's not really a space, a safe space for them to communicate about their anxieties around being infertile or their anxieties about their partner being infertile. And so one of the areas that I think is really missing and something that I really am encouraging clinicians to focus on is really bringing the couple together, encouraging the male to be participating in the process of fertility care, to really engage with his partner, to feel that he has a role. And the reason for that is twofold. So one is to empower the man and to help him feel engaged in the fertility care. But even more importantly, is that the burden's really been put on the female, that women have felt this burden and this responsibility to fix the problem of infertility. And it's on them to sort of sort out, to deal with their male partner, to deal with the treatment, to organize care. And so trying to bring couples together, bringing the man into the picture, and I'm talking about heterosexual couples, it could be a same-sex couple as well, um, but really bringing the couple together, no matter what the form of that couple is, is so important to the success outcomes. And we've seen that in some of the data that we've looked at. Success rates are higher when couples work together, when couples are engaged, when they're aligned. And it's really important for us to include males into the conversation and you know, talk about their, their well-being. Supportive partners is going to improve the outcome of the female um, gestating that pregnancy. And so trying to encourage and remove some of the burden off the woman by encouraging men to get engaged in the process or the male or the other partner to get engaged in the process, I think will is an important area of, um, of need for research and, and treatment as well. Or as my mother used to say to me, she's just like a unified front. Unified front, exactly. She always, she, yes. She always told me, it's just like, you and your partner, unified front, you can't unified go wrong. Front. No, you do, absolutely. And, and the idea here is really to build a nest, to build a, a solid base from which you will have a baby. You're bringing a baby into this world. You need alignment as a couple. You need a united front from the start. So if you're off, you know, if you're not aligned from the beginning, when you're just trying to conceive the pregnancy and there's dysfunction and dysregulation between the relationship, that'll carry on into the pregnancy and into the child's health. And so my idea is this holistic idea, which is bring health back, bring well-being back to the individual, but bring well-being back into the couple and try to improve opportunities for communication and alignment in the couple, for intimacy, for sexual health, for pleasure, all these things that have been completely taken out of the conversation of IVF care, of fertility care. We don't talk about sex. We don't talk about intimacy. We don't talk about pleasure. All these things have been put on the back table as if they're not important to reproduction when in fact we know that's critical. Making love and having an opportunity to have an engaging relationship with your partner will improve outcomes even without treatment, even without medication, even without anything else. Just the connection that you have with your partner super important to offspring outcomes down the line and the stress goes down the adrenal um, production of cortisol goes down you have better regulation over your emotions um, we need better attention to these things we need to focus more on the mental health of the couple 
and uh, the holistic care of the couple when we treat couples with infertility. And we have opportunities to encourage them to make choices in their day-to-day life through their environmental exposures to improve some of these things as well. So these are the areas that I'm focusing on in my studies and my research, encouraging research that includes more than just um, looking at the quality of the egg and the sperm, but how can we actually improve exposures in our environment? Again, the total environment, the social built and natural environment to then create a space that's healthier for those eggs and sperm to form and for the embryos to be in a healthier environment when they uh, implant. My guest today is Dr. Carmen Masurlian. We're talking about holistic approaches and, and overall environmental factors in reproduction. You recently co-authored a paper that's on uh, infertility and sterility right now. It's uh, an article in press, in fact, called Reproductive Medicine in the Face of Climate Change, a Call for Prevention Through Leadership. And I was wondering if you could just talk about that for a moment about how, because I, I think, again, I think that, you know, again, it's interesting climate change, something we don't really think about, you know, again, environmental factors that help us in maybe taking more holistic approaches. I'll stop babbling at this point and let you you get into that. Yeah, those are amazing points. I think this is an area that's, um, again, not received enough attention is this idea that climate factors impact everything. So the impact I'll give you an example. A woman's pregnant. There's, you know, um, you know, in California, there's been a lot of forest fires. You can't go outside. Or if you do, you're exposing your fetus. So we know that exposures in pregnancy can harm the fetus, but we also know through research in, in, in work that I've done and others have produced that show that actually those exposures to air pollutants and climate factors, heat, um, heat stress, um, noise, um, light, these things impact not just the pregnancy, but actually our ability to produce healthy eggs and healthy sperm. And so climate factors have been sort of not focused on in the way that we we want to look at in terms of how do we encourage um, policies, top-down approaches that can improve the health of the reproductive couple. And the paper that is in Fertility and Australia referred to really talks about leadership opportunities from from a top-down approach, so from policies and government action that can improve sort of climate factors in light of their impact on reproductive health, but also strategies from the ground up, looking at making um, better access to safe environments um, in um, on the ground up. So looking at even an IVF clinic and how they organize their care, how they provide access to care, We've looked at in the last two years as a result of the pandemic that there's been much more opportunity to actually do care through virtual visits. And so that's an opportunity to support couples and individuals in the climate space because I may not be able to go outside. There's a heat wave today, right? Do I need to drive three, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes across Boston to get to the IVF clinic at the Massachusetts General Hospital? Or can I have a virtual visit where I can stay in my home, feel safe? have um, less exposure to, let's say, public transport. So these are kinds of ideas that we need um, physicians and clinicians in the IVF space to sort of think about much more broadly, but also much more specifically. So broadly from their opportunity to lead and to make decisions to advocate for better better access to care, um, better conditions within a clinic, how they organize um, their um, backup generator. If there is if there is a loss of power, for example, how 
What are the protocols around that? What happens to the eggs and the sperm that have been stored in these spaces? And these um, very sensitive environments need to be very tightly controlled. And so we need to have policies and procedures in place for emergency action. And um, that requires awareness, knowledge, education on the leadership point, um, but also on a broader scale from a policy and public policy point of view. So it's a big topic, hard to tackle. The idea is that we all need to start with N of one, which is what I always encourage is we need to start with ourselves making better choices in our day-to-day lives to reduce our impact on climate and then to encourage people in leadership positions to have a voice, to use your voice, to go and recommend. For example, I sit on some, some state legislature that's important for my environment, um, where my kids go to school, the kind of pesticides they use in the grass that they grow in the gardens that they have. These are things that we have an opportunity to lead in as you know, educated people to help support those that have less opportunity to advocate for themselves. And so these policies, they're public policies, they support the continuum of people. So everybody on on the scale of low SES to high SES gets to benefit from public policies. And so I mentioned at the beginning how, you know, not everybody has the same opportunity for choice. If you have better resources, more education, you have more opportunity to choose For example, I talk a lot about personal care products and how they harm reproductive health and how they have an impact on reproductive health because these chemicals like phthalates and phenols, we know that they're reproductive toxicants. So I can afford to purchase product A from Whole Foods. It's a little bit more money. I know that these products have lower concentrations or no concentrations of these chemicals in them. But if I'm an individual that has less education, less financial means, I might just, I might go to the dollar store to buy my shampoo, right? And that might, we know that some of those products have a higher concentration of these toxic chemicals. And so choice is not equal, but if we could regulate what kinds of products are allowed to have these chemicals in from a top-down policy point of view, we can improve the health. Um, That strategy is is a public um, population level strategy that can improve the health of the entire continuum of people that are at risk. How do you how do you think and and I want to also tie in here since you're the chair of the ASRM Environment and, and Reproduction uh, Special Interest Group, uh, what because this can seem, I'm assuming, very overwhelming for providers, right? That, that there's just so much to tackle and there's just so many topics. Like what yeah. what what what's the best? You know, I thought it was very interesting that you said uh, you you said "in of one" to mean self and not someone else, right? Instead of story, I, I liked that. Uh, it, was it? So, and of so, one is you is what you're choosing, right? Recommend, right. So we have a choice to make, and then we could talk about our choices to others and educate people. So my team at Harvard University, the School of Public Health, um, my group is called the Seed Program. We have a website, seedprogram.co. We're in the middle of launching a campaign with a number of different pamphlets and PDFs that we are going to be having fully accessible on our website that includes a pamphlet for individual um, individuals, males and females on how to reduce exposure for couples that are tra- a separate one for couples trying to conceive, a separate one for parents with young children. These PDFs and these pamphlets, again, downloadable off our website also ones for clinicians on how to recommend choices and opportunities for educating your 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 patients on how to reduce exposure um, things that you can suggest in your clinical setting so we're going to have these pamphlets available free downloadable um, they've 
you know, we put a lot of research and science into them. They're all science backed. They cover a host of chemicals and products and groups of products, personal care products, for example, home care products, household products, food choices, um, lots of opportunities for education. Education is just one point. Like I said, it's the first step in any public health strategy is awareness and education. We need to start somewhere. We need to educate the population. We need to educate the physicians that treat individual couples. Um, but these pamphlets and information um, sheets are going to be very helpful, I think, to help reduce some of the overwhelming part because we've done the research. We know what we need to recommend. We've spent a lot of time, a lot of years, a lot of NIH funding to understand what are the risks, what are the groups of chemicals we need to be worried about, where do they occur, what are the sources, how can we mitigate and reduce exposure. So we've produced these to help digest some of the evidence to translate some of that evidence into actionable steps, simple steps that people can take. And one of the most important things for the listeners some of them are parents or people trying to conceive as well. My focus and what my messaging is always the same. It's harm minimization. So little incremental steps towards reducing your exposure, even if it's by 2% or 3% or 4%, we don't need to take off everything. We just need to harm minimize. So reduce your exposures to the harmful stuff a tiny bit every day and increase your exposure to the healthy things a tiny bit every day. Those incremental steps are a step in the right direction. So we don't need to tackle everything. I'm a mom. I've got two teenage sons. I was pregnant once. I can't eliminate everything in my environment, right? But I have choices. And if I can just eliminate one or two things in my children's life or in my life that are known to be harmful, that's that's a win, right? Incremental small gains. That's a win. Diet is something we haven't talked about, which is also very important. So what we eat is an exposure. It's an environmental exposure. We know that there's nutritional gains. Some types of nutrients actually block or mitigate the effect of some of these chemicals in our bodies. And we're producing some science that shows that right now with perfluorinated chemicals and folic acid. Others have studied the opportunity for folic acid to block things like BPA from harming eggs and sperm. So our diet, our nutrition, improving our diet and nutrition is a really important tool that we have in our hands, in our lives that can actually improve the health and well-being of our reproductive systems. And so increasing fruit and vegetables consumption, decreasing our consumption of processed foods, of takeout foods, of foods that are on paper products and um, food packaging. One of the biggest sources of perfluorinated chemicals is food packaging. Removing food packaging from your life, if you can, through um, changing the package when it gets home, putting it into glass or metal, storing foods and things that are more safe. So our pamphlets talk about all those kinds of strategies that we have some agency over. We don't have agency over the air that we breathe because that's government regulates pollutant levels and air, air water quality and how much, you know, the safe levels of certain chemicals in um, our water. But we have some agency over things that are in our day-to-day -day home. Um, those are the things that I encourage people to sort of make choices on. And we're not perfect. You know, I take get pizza takeout all the time for my children. It's in paper boxes that I know are covered with perfluorinated chemicals. But on other days, you know, today we had a big fruit salad for breakfast and we had whole eggs and we had grainy toast. So, um, you know, there's a day that you had good nutrition. So you need to balance things out. And it's really about working towards harm minimization small incremental wins on the negative side and small incremental wins on the positive side and trying to balance those things out. And you'll be working in the right direction if you do that. But it takes education and um, information to the right audience to be able to translate the evidence that we've generated over decades to people's lives.
that's been my goal for the last few months. And that's where I'm taking my career. Well, we're almost out of time. I have so many more questions, but, yes. but I'm going to have to bring you back okay. to do another episode with us. My guest today has been uh, Dr. Carmen Masurlian. Uh, we've talked about so many things. We have so many things to talk about having to do with, with uh, holistic care and environmental factors and all of these things. Uh, she is the chair of the ASRM Environment and Reproduction Special Interest Group. If you have a question for them, you can contact us and we will forward it to them. Contact us, ASRM at ASRM.org. As always, we will also link to the pamphlets that Dr. Masterlian was discussing earlier, as well as any other materials that we, we've probably brought up in this show uh, as, as we've gone on today. Thank you so much for taking time out to do this. And I really look forward to, to, to bringing you back uh, soon. That would be amazing. And I do have, I'll, I'll link you on to my, um, to my um, other pages, my Instagram and my TikTok page. So you could look at, people can ask questions, can post things, and I'm happy to answer them as well. Fantastic. You can subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Google, or wherever you get your podcast these days. And again, if you have questions for us or questions for the Environment and Reproduction Special Interest Group, you can contact us ASRM at ASRM.com. O-R-G. As always, I am Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today Series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.